You want to make your way back to your seats, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11 this morning, and we'll be working from verse 1 down to verse 32. So if you, if you have a, a hard copy, go ahead and open up. If you've got Bible on, on your phone or on a tablet, you can pull that up as well. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to gather and to worship. God, we do pray that here in our presence this morning, God, that you would open up the heavens and that we might see you clearly. Lord, we pray that your spirit would take the truth of your word. God, that your spirit would take the truth of who you are and of what you've done for us in Christ, Lord, and that you would press that deeply into our hearts. God, that we would see and understand clearly from Romans 11 here, what it is that you're doing in the world and in history, God, that you would show us what our place is in that and how it is that we find purpose and what it is that you're trying to do from an eternal perspective. God, would, you, would your spirit just open our, eye, our eyes and our hearts and our minds to that this morning, Lord? God, would we be challenged by your word? Would we be encouraged? Uh, would, we, would we be convicted if that's what we need, God? Lord, we pray that you would just have your way among us while we humbly submit ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, there have been a few, a few points in my life that I can remember quite distinctly where uh, it's like I was laying there in bed and it's late and I'm just I'm wrestling with staring at the wall and you want to be asleep. You're staring at the ceiling and your mind is racing. And I typically find myself drifting to ever increasingly large questions in those moments. Like, what am I going to do tomorrow with this thing? And then like, what's like the next five years of my life look like? And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm trying to figure out there at like three in the morning, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What am I doing with all of my time? Does, any of, does anything that I'm doing matter? Like my mind just races to these bigger and bigger questions. And they're typically at periods of my life that, are, that have been incredibly uh, like transitional or incredibly um, formative for me. And so I think of being in college and I went to college thinking I wanted to do one thing. I ended up deciding I, I did not want to do that thing for the rest of my life. And so I spent many a night just laying there like, what am I going to do? Like, what, what do I want to do with 40 plus years worth of working life? And who am I trying to be? Like, what is my purpose in life? I think we all wrestle with that question at some point. And I'm certainly not going to give the answer for every single person in the room here this morning. But I do think in Romans 11, we start to see a little bit of we get like a peek behind the curtain of what God's purpose is both all around the world in a global sense, but also in an eternal sense, from eternity past into eternity future. And as we get that sort of image and we seek to apply this to ourselves, I think we find out a little bit about our own purpose. And so that's what we're gonna see this morning. We're gonna work through Romans 11, one to 32, which is a larger passage than we've been working with as we've gone through Romans. And the reason for that is I think it makes sense to hold all of this together. I think we see it most clearly. So we're gonna handle these verses a little bit differently than we have been over the last year. I'm gonna give more big pieces and big ideas of what is kind of the structure of Romans 11 and how does it fit in in this section, which started in Romans 9, one and ends at the end of chapter 11. Let me give the big context here. 
Romans 9, 10, and 11 flow right out of Romans 8, which is this incredible list of promises and blessings that are uh, a believers by their justification, their salvation. And Paul answers the question, can we trust that those promises will be true for us if God has not been faithful to Israel? Like if God hasn't been faithful to his Old Testament people, how do we know he'll be faithful to all these promises to us as Christians, as believers? And so Paul launches into that in 9, 10, and 11 by displaying the consistency and the holiness of God's word and work in the justification of humanity. That includes Israel. It also includes all the Gentiles. And so in Romans chapter 9, he's looking from the standpoint of divine sovereignty. And we talked about election and what does that mean. In Romans 10, he's working from the standpoint of human responsibility. That even though God is absolutely sovereign, humanity is absolutely responsible, both in receiving the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ and in the proclaiming of the message of the gospel. We're responsible on both sides of that. And then in Romans 11, he puts this period on the end of this sentence by saying, and there is a massive purpose to all of this that God is working out in all of human history. And so that's what we're gonna see this morning. Where we're headed is to the truth, the reality that God will fulfill his global eternal purpose according to his plan and his timing. That's where we're gonna land at the end of Romans verse 32. But it leaves us with, some fairly large questions. And so how I'm gonna frame this over the course of the next 30 minutes or so is that we're just gonna work our way through the answer to these three questions. Well, what is God's global eternal purpose? If he will fulfill it, we need to know what it is. It also would help us to know what's the plan for that purpose's fulfillment. And then lastly, when will that take place? What is God's timing for its fulfillment? We get answers to varying degrees to those questions as we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11 and consider where we've come up to this point. We're going to start that process by going right to the heart of this passage. The main two-sentence chunk of Romans 11 comes in verses 25 and 26. So if you've got a Bible you want to look down there, that's where we're going to start. And we're going to start by getting the answer to God's global eternal purpose. Here's what Romans 11, 25, and 26 says. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. What is God doing? Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. So let me give you the answer. He says that all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is God's global eternal purpose? Well, it's the display of his glory through the justification of all nations. All Israel will be saved. That's God's chosen nation. The fullness of the Israel or of the Gentiles will be brought in. That's the nations. We lose a little bit of something in the terms Jews and Gentiles or Israelites and Gentiles because we think of two separate groups. The reality is that there are the Israelites, that's one specific group, and then there are the Gentiles, and that's thousands of groups. All Israel will be saved, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means, after the fullness of all these other nations have been brought in. And so all the nations will be saved. God's chosen nation and all the nations. When we 
read Romans 11, 25 and 26, there's a ring to it of God's covenant promise with Abraham in Genesis. I will make you into a great nation. That's the Israelite people. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples or nations on the earth will be blessed through you. If you were with us in 2017, we walked through the entirety of the kind of narrative historical portions of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. This display of God's glory in saving humanity, redeeming, justifying humanity, that is the story of the Bible beginning to end. That is what God is doing. This is what God is moving all of human history toward. This is the reason that Jesus Christ came. The reason Christ hung on the cross, the display of God's glory in justifying humanity, the nations. Jesus says that's his purpose himself. During his ministry, he makes statements like these in Luke 4, 43. It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to all the other towns because I was sent for this purpose. Mark 10, 45, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John three sixteen. for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Matthew 9, 13, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The display of God's glory through the justification of all nations. That is God's purpose that he's working toward the world over and throughout all of eternity. He's been moving toward it since the garden. He stated that covenant with Abraham in Genesis. He restated that purpose through Jesus's ministry. He bought it by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He commissioned it to the disciples in the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. The display of God's glory through the justification of the nations. Let's back up, go back to the start of Romans 11, and we'll see what is the plan for making that happen, and then what is the timing of that. The answer to our second question, we'll see in verses 1 through 10, that the blessings of salvation will move from Israel to the Gentiles back to Israel. That's God's plan for how he's going to work this out. In Romans 11, there's like this boomerang kind of effect happening, Israel Gentiles, Israel. And it's, it's mentioned two or three times in the chapter. In verses 11 and 12, you see it. In verses 15 and 16, you see it. And then Paul kind of summarizes it or punctuates it in verses 28 and 29 and 30. Here's how he kind of works this out for us. He starts by saying that Israel's disobedience or their rejection of God is not full. Not all of the people of Israel have rejected God. This is Romans 11 verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul answers that question. Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's first proof that not all Israel has been rejected or has been disobedient to God is, hey, I am an Israelite. I'm one. God can't have rejected all of his people because he would have had to have rejected me, but I have been justified. I have been saved. Therefore, God has not rejected all of his people. But then he goes on to say that God has always preserved a remnant of his people. That's verses two through 10. God has not rejected his own people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, and he's gonna quote from 1 Kings 19 here. 
how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Elijah, in the pit of kind of despair, says, Lord, I think I'm the only faithful Israelite person left. Of all your chosen people, I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not. I've preserved 7,000 who have not bowed down to false gods, to other gods. And then Paul extends that and says, in the same way, there's a remnant right now chosen by grace that God in his goodness and in his kindness to his people has saved for himself. It was true in Elijah's time. It's true there in Paul's time. And by extension, it's also true today. Then he's going to go on and he's going to quote two other Old Testament sections, starting in verse seven. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened as it is written. And Paul's going to mesh together a statement from Deuteronomy and a statement from Isaiah. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And then he quotes from Psalm 96. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their eyes be bent continually. In the midst of this remnant, most of Israel has been hardened. They've been given a spirit of stupor, Paul says. Remember back from Romans 9. God doesn't just harden people to harden them. Like Pharaoh, those who are hardening their own heart are then hardened by God for a purpose, that he might display or, display or proclaim his name and his glory to the ends of the earth, his power to the ends of the earth. Paul says that's what's happened. God's graciously preserved a remnant of Israel. Their disobedience is in full. But those who have been hardened are hardened for a reason. Those who have been given this spirit of stupor, are given one for a purpose. And Paul's going to lay that out. The Psalm 96 passage, let their table become a snare. Your dining room table is a place of safety. Your home, the place where you gather around, it should be a place of security. Paul says that place of security, the law, all the prophets, God's calling and choosing, that was supposed to be security for the Israelites. But instead it's become a snare. It's become a trap for them. They've stumbled over those things. And so Paul goes on and he asks another rhetorical question in verse 11. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. Israel's disobedience isn't full. It's also not final. There's a difference between stumbling and falling. We all kind of intuitively know it. If you're walking down your sidewalk and you get one of those uh, frustrating places in the sidewalk where like one block is like this much lower than the one next to it and you're just out enjoying the day, looking at the beauty of everything around you. Maybe you're pushing the stroller, walking the dog, something like that, and you're not really paying attention and this much of a difference, you just ram your foot right into the front of that thing and now everything's falling forward, right? There's a difference in that moment between ending up splayed out on the sidewalk with cuts on your hands and turning it into a nice trot because you just stumbled a little bit, right? There's a difference between those two things. Romans 10 asks the question or, or put forward this idea that Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
So in Romans 11, Paul asks the question, have they stumbled so as to fall? And he answers it, absolutely not. They've stumbled, but it's not final. God is going to do something more through them. Picking up in verse 12. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles from Israel to the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Back to Israel. Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might make, or if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, Israel to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Back to Israel. And now Paul's going to put forward two illustrations. One about some dough and one about an olive tree. Now if the first fruits are holy so is the whole batch. If the first fruits, Abraham, the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, if they were holy and God made a covenant with them, the whole batch is holy. God's going to do something with the rest of it. Their rejection, their disobedience is not final. God's got something in store. Then he moves on to this longer illustration about an olive tree. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now I'm gonna read from 17 to 24. I had to do something when I was just working through this passage in order to help myself understand all the pronoun usage and the imagery in the illustration. I just got out two different colored pins, a blue one and a red one. Blue one for Gentiles, red one for Israelites. And I needed to mark the illustration so I could follow what Paul was saying. And then in the last paragraph paragraph of this chapter, 28, 29, and 30, I had to do the same thing with all the pronouns because it becomes a little bit confusing. But if you let yourself see it, then everything makes sense a little bit. So I just printed out the passage and I started marking on it so I could follow. Here's what Paul says. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, kindness towards those who have fallen, um, or severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Let me summarize. The root here of this plant that Paul's talking about is the blessings of salvation, the blessings of justification. There are these what natural olive branches, that's Israel. There are these wild olive branches. Those are the Gentiles. And Paul says, some of those natural branches have been removed from the root. They've been taken out. And some of these wild olive branches have been grafted into the root. And now they're enjoying the blessings of that wonderful, rich root of the tree. But at a future point, those natural branches will be put back in. Israel had the blessings of covenant promise, but God has removed 
some of them, preserved a remnant, but removed some of them and started grafting in Gentiles into the blessings of salvation. At some point in the future, if God could do that kind of hard work, how much easier is it going to be for him to put Israel back in, for him to graft back in the natural branches into this rich root? And that's exactly what he's going to do, Romans 11 says. There's no room for Israelite despair or Israelite gloom in this because God is going to display himself faithful. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be saved. There's also no room for Gentile boasting or gloating in all of this because God's grafted them in, but if he didn't spare his own people in their unbelief, he will not spare the Gentiles either. And in the middle of this whole passage, there's a, a beautiful statement in verse 22. Consider God's kindness and severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, kindness toward you if you remain in God's kindness. Let me give a sermon in a sermon because this one verse could get a whole Sunday morning. As a follower of Christ, if you've been saved by the receiving of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, take some time this week to open up Scripture and reflect upon the severity of God toward your sin. Exactly what did you deserve in your sin? And allow the truth of God's word to speak to that and then consider the kindness of God in your salvation. What all have you received thanks to the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ despite your sin? The severity of God is a real thing. It is imminent and it will fall upon all those who have not been justified by faith in Christ. But the kindness of God is an overwhelming thing. And it has been received by grace by all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God's severity is real. His kindness is overwhelming. And God gives a warning to the Gentiles. Don't become arrogant about your faith and about your justification because it is an act of God's kindness that he's made that possible for you. No room for boasting, but also no room for despairing because though God's severity is real, his kindness is overwhelming. And all the while in this, the Gentile church is filling itself up. Israel to the Gentiles, back to Israel. And then that brings us to the final question. What is the timing of all of this? Well, verses 25 down to 32 will show us that. Let me read them and then we'll work with them. I do not want you to become ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but have now received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. The pronouns are crucial there. The they's are about Israel. The you's 
are about Gentiles. They are enemies. Israel has become an enemy for your Gentile advantage. The blessings of salvation have moved from Israel to the Gentiles. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. The root is holy. The first fruits of the batch of dough is holy. They're loved because of that. The they's and the you's are crucial. What's the timing of all of this purpose? Well, while the Gentile church is filling, Israel's return is future. And we don't have a full answer to when this will play out, but it's safe to assume that when the gospel has gone to all the nations, one of two things will happen. As that process is taking place, there will be an increasing number of Israelite people who see Christ for who he is and accept him by faith and receive God's grace. Or once the Gentile church is completely full and the gospel has gone to all the nations, then there will be one mass quick move of Jewish people to faith in Jesus Christ. One of those two scenarios is how this will play out. And then it will be possible to make the statement of 1126, that all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Three really important words in there. All and Israel and saved. So let's look at them. Israel here means national Israel. The nation of Israel. People of Jewish descent. In Romans 9, 6, Paul made the point that not all Israel is Israel. And there he meant that not all who were physically descended of Abraham were true spiritual Israel. But in all of Romans 11 here, Paul has been talking about national Israel. In the illustration about the olive tree, that's national Israel. Saying that a partial hardening has come upon Israel, that's national Israel. So here he says all of Israel will be saved, the nation. Well, what does all mean? Back when the Royals won the World Series, there was that glorious day where basically the entire city shut down and they held the parade. And if you just go look for like estimates of the number of people that were in attendance on that day, you'll catch numbers anywhere from like 300,000 to half a million people. And some who I think are just really zealous about Kansas City will say it was as high as like 800,000 people were present downtown. It would have made absolute sense for a newspaper writer or a television journalist to have said that all of Kansas City turned out for the parade? Does that mean every single individual who lives in the Kansas City metropolitan area was present? No. But does it mean that such an overwhelming number was there that it makes sense to use the word all? Yes, we understand that. If you had read in the paper the next day that all of Kansas City showed up to the parade, you wouldn't have thought, oh my gosh, every house was empty. You would have you would thought to yourself, wow, there were tons of people there. I think that's what all means in Romans eleven twenty six. That not every single Jewish individual at a fixed point in the future when this happens is going to receive Christ by faith. But such an overwhelming number are that it will be possible to make the statement that all Israel has been, last key word, saved. That word saved means exactly what it means in the rest of the book of Romans. By grace, through faith. At various times in the history of the church, some have tried to argue that God will save Israel by, an, by some other means. That's known as two-track theology. But it's simply not true. Just look back at verse 23. And even if they, that's Israel, 
do not remain in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Faith in Christ is the means by which we receive God's grace for salvation. All Israel will be saved. And then Paul finishes this entire section here with a statement in verse 32. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Where does this whole process end? It ends with the display of God's mercy, the showing of his glory by giving mercy to those who do not deserve it. Romans chapter nine, I raised you up for this purpose, God says to Pharaoh, that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. We talked about what that name means. It's about God's character. It's about his glory and his greatness. Ultimately, it's about mercy on whom he will have mercy, compassion on whom he will have compassion. Romans 9 said God chooses that act. Romans 10 says humanity is absolutely responsible for receiving that mercy. Romans 11 says the justification of all the nations thanks to that mercy is what God is doing around the globe and all throughout history. God will fulfill his global eternal purpose according to his plan and in his timing. What in the world do we do with that? We read this passage in 2018, and we don't hear it the same way someone would have heard it who was a Jewish individual in the second century, a Jewish individual shortly after Christ's death and resurrection. These would have been treasured words to them, that God's not done with us, that despite seeing all of these Gentiles coming into the faith and being saved by the God that we thought was specifically ours, God has not written us off. He's going to do something with our people in the future. He will be faithful. The word of God has not fallen, Romans 9, 6. Romans 11 would have been so precious. Today we read it and we think, what in the world? What does that have to do with me in Kansas City, Missouri in 2018? Let me try to back up and offer a picture here from Romans 9, 10, and 11 of ultimately what we take away from all of this. The first is that we need to see reality. We need to see the reality that first and foremost, God has a plan. He has a huge, global, eternal plan. We tend to make faith we tend to make Christianity hyper-individualistic. Why did Jesus come to the earth? American Christian would respond with great joy, well, he came to save me. That's why he came, for me. And that's absolutely true. We sing the song about the overwhelming love of God, that he would leave the 99 in order to get the one. But why would he leave the 99 to get the one? Not because he wants one, because he wants a hundred. He wants every single one that is going to be his. Yes, God's plan for the justification of all the nations absolutely includes you, but it does not culminate with you. You are not the end point of God's great plan. Why am I acting in history? Well, because Tim Fritzen is so wonderful. That's not it. 
Why am I acting in history? Because my glory will be displayed to all nations for all eternity in the justification of humanity. That's why. Did Jesus Christ hang on the cross for you? Absolutely. But did he hang on the cross for only you? Absolutely not. Why do we not ultimately share the gospel? I think it's because we subtly believe that it ends with me. The whole reason for all of this, we think to ourselves, is me. And that's just not the case. God has a plan for the justification of all nations, the display of his glory through that, and he will absolutely fulfill it. He will. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So it, it might not go the way we think it should. It certainly didn't go the way Israel thought it should. But it will come to pass according to his will and in his timing. God will bless Israel and through them bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And if those two things are true, then God can absolutely be trusted. That's where this conversation began back at the start of Romans 9. Romans 9 to 11 are a picture of not only God's faithfulness, but his glory in bringing about the justification of Israel and the justification of all the nations of the earth. He can be trusted with every single letter of his words, which means we can bank on all the glorious promises of Romans chapter 8. There will be no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will be no condemnation before the Lord for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit inside of every single believer cries out our adoption, Abba, Father, before the Lord. You've been brought in to that family. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, sanctifying you into the image of Jesus Christ. You can bank on all of those promises. He can be trusted. We need to see reality. I also think we need to see a vision of eternity. All of this is moving toward a defined end point. You don't need to flip there, but I'm going to read to you from Revelation. Paul kind of pulls the curtain back just a little bit on this mystery in Romans chapter 11, that once all the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in, then all of Israel will be saved. And we get this kind of shred of a picture, but Revelation paints the full picture for us. This is in chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After this, I, that's John, who's writing, looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then Revelation 21 gives us a little more about exactly what that's going to look like. John is seeing this new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem. And this is what he says. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord... God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring, that's the kings of the nations, the glory and honor of their nations into it. You can think of eternity as having this moment where someone stands up there around the throne and he starts to take role. Has God rejected the Israelites? And from some corner of that crowded space, a mass of people shout in jubilation like Paul in Romans 11.1, 1, absolutely not because we're here. And then he just starts to work his way down a roll sheet of 17,000 different people groups. Has God forgotten the Brahui people? Absolutely not, they cry out, because we're here. Has God forgotten the Burmese people? Has God forgotten the Japanese people? Has God forgotten the Kotoko people? 2,500 people in Chad. And in that moment, one of them is going to shout out, or a group of them are going to shout out, by no means because we are here right now. Has God forgotten the Malay in Malaysia, the Selkup in Siberia, the Sumbawa in Indonesia, the Popovo in Brazil? The answer to every single one of those questions around the throne in eternity is going to be no. Absolutely not. And on and on and on it will continue until all the people groups and the nations, the tongues, the tribes of all of the earth have been named and then a roar is going to erupt in heaven as the glory of God and the justification of all nations is celebrated for all of eternity. There's an amazing moment every couple years at the Olympic Games where all the nations of the world come in bearing their flags. And they get that last country into the stadium and it just erupts in cheers because of what is standing down there before them. The moment in heaven and in eternity is going to be infinitely greater than that because every nation on the face of the earth is going to be present. We need to catch that vision because that's what God's working toward. That's what human history is working toward. Romans 9, he is sovereign in making it happen. Romans 10, we are responsible as humanity to receive that and also to proclaim that. Romans 11, understand the purpose. When all the Gentile fullness has been brought in, all of Israel will be saved and it will be to God's glory that every nation on the face of the planet has been justified and is worshiping the Lord for all of eternity at the throne. It's an unbelievable picture, and in it, we see our purpose in his purpose. You will find the purpose of your life as you bury yourself in his purpose in eternity. It begins with submission. I'm just, just going to like peek at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, because in response to all of this, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your lives. Give all of yourself to that. You might think, I don't really know exactly what my purpose in life is. I wake up every morning. I go to some job. 
I think I'm chasing the American dream or some vision of prosperity or some sort of happiness that I can't exactly put my finger on. Shift your focus. Bury yourself in God's purpose for the nations and for the world and you will find where you come alive in the midst of that. It could play itself out in thousands of different ways. In a classroom as a teacher, it could play itself out in some business world. It might not be within your job. It could just be within your family. It could be within the life of our church. But as you bury yourself in his purpose, your passions, your talents, your giftings mesh perfectly with some area of life where you become this You've got this platform where the radiates are that just radiates out God's gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's where you come alive. Why did God raise up Noah, Abraham, Moses, Pharaoh, Joshua, the judges, Israel's kings, David, the prophets, the disciples, Paul, to display his power and proclaim his name to the ends of the earth? Why did God raise up you? Same reason. If you've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you sit here this morning as a trophy of God's grace and his mercy. And your purpose comes alive when you bury it inside his. You might wake up every day and you go teach middle school science. And there are some days where 12-year-old boys make you want to smash your head against a whiteboard. And yet at the end of the day, you lay down and you go to sleep completely content because you know for certain that all that God has made you intersects perfectly with all that God is doing in that place. I don't have the answer for what everybody's purpose is exactly here in this room, but I know for certain that every person in this room has gifts, that every person in this room has passions and talents that are God-given intentionally and that he has raised you up to proclaim his power and his name to the ends of the earth and you find your purpose by aligning all that he's created you to be with all that he's doing for all of eternity and in that spot you come alive and the message of the gospel becomes incredibly compelling to the nations of the world. You sit here this morning and you say to yourself, I have no idea what that is for me. I want to give you an invitation this morning. On September 22nd, that's a Saturday, here at our church, once a year, we offer a seminar on a Saturday. It's like six hours long. It's called Discover Your Ministry. It's all about helping you figure out what are my passions, what's my personality, what are my talents, and what have I been gifted with? And then how does that intersect? Where do those things, where can I use those in ministry? How can I use those in my life? If you've got questions of purpose and this sort of coming alive, I want to encourage you to be present there. Start to figure out what God's hardwired into you and then start to catch a vision for how you can use that to proclaim the greatness of his name and his mercy to the ends of the earth. You find your purpose when you bury yourself in his. Anything less, though it may be partially satisfying or temporarily important, will fall short of the eternal significance and satisfaction of being used by God to populate the space around the foot of the throne. We're going to close this morning worshiping, and the first song we're going to sing is called Revelation Song. The chorus comes right out of the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. That chorus is going to arise in heaven for all of eternity. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should long for it to arise from every nation on this planet today. You find your purpose in life as you bury yourself inside the will and purpose of God. Let's stand up and worship together.